When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Wealth Ability for CPAs show. Better clients, better practice, better life. Here's Tom Wheelwright. Welcome to the Wealth Ability show for CPAs, where we're always discovering how to build better clients, better practice, and a better life. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder and CEO of the Wealth Ability Network. So we're thinking about bringing people back to the office. We're thinking about how to design uh, our office life, how to design our work life. We've been, you know, the we've been the front line of the financial um, impact of COVID for the last two years. Now it's time to come back. And what do we do? How do we design that? And I don't, it's probably not just ping pong tables and snacks. It's, we've got to do a lot more because we have a lot of pressure on us to hire people from that, that don't want to move to our area. We have uh, pressure on salaries that way and uh, pressure on kind of work-life balance. So uh, with that, we brought in um, a real heavy hitter for this and really appreciate uh, Bill Burnett joining us today. Bill has a, a, just a ton of experience in design, in general design. And I, I love that we've got somebody on design talking about this because I do think that when you look at the very big picture and you look at the design, everything else can kind of flow through that design. But to me, that's kind of the first step. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, um, Bill, thanks so much. Uh, Bill, Bill wrote the book, Designing Your New Work Life, which is exactly the topic we're going to talk about today. And uh, Bill, if you would just give us a little bit about your background. Sure. And, and thanks for having me on, Tom. It's, this is, this is going to be fun. So, you know, I, I, I've been a designer kind of unconsciously my whole life. When I was a kid, I was always drawing pictures and stuff. I, uh, I grew up in the Boston area, but when uh, I got this nice letter from Stanford, because it was a letter in those days saying I could come here, I, I, I got out of town because I wanted to get as far away from my folks as possible. Turned out there was a really great design program here. So I studied that and I went and worked in the toy industry for a while. I worked in Cincinnati, Ohio for the Kenner Toy Company, designing Star Wars toys. That was kind of fun. Cool. And then um, came back on my master's and I've been in the Valley. I did a couple of startups. I worked for Apple for seven years, which is an amazing design place. Had my own consulting firm and you know, a bunch of different experiences all, all around design. And then when I got to, um, uh, when I came back to my, my master's here, they asked me if I would come back and teach a class. Cause we like to, we like to have practitioners in our program. Our, our, our design programs interesting in that it's, it's different than other programs. We, we, uh, we were in the engineering school. Most design programs are over in the art and architecture school. We're in the engineering school. So we got this strong sort of technical background and then we add in human factors and, and aesthetics and other things. So it's always been this really interesting hybrid program. And so I started teaching cause we like to have practitioners teach and I've been te- was teaching sort of part-time for a bunch of years. And in 2006, David Kelly, who's our senior professor and the guy who started the, the big consulting firm IDEO, which is just, you know, design and strategy and innovation, did the original Apple mouse, David and, and, and Steve Jobs were good friends. They, um, so I came back in 2006 and I took a full-time job to run the undergraduate and graduate program that I graduated from, which was cool. But basically, you know, the whole, the whole idea has been, gee, how do you, 
how do you get other people who aren't designers to think like designers? How do we, how do we teach the mindset of a designer? Yeah, because- so we actually are giving you the most difficult challenge of all. We're having you right. get CPAs to CPAs. think like designers. Okay. Well, you know, so I mean, how do you do that? Here's the deal. Every, everyone is actually this as creative as everyone else. It turns out if you look at the brain science, creativity isn't something special. It's, it's actually a defect. We won't go into that, but, but um, anybody can learn. Um, the mindsets of, of, of a designer. We start with um, creativity. Uh, and it, this is particularly interesting when you talk about, we're going to talk about how do we design uh, our work and our work life uh, nowadays, uh, post-pandemic. You know, if, if, if you're moving into an unknown space and we really don't, you know, there's a lot of predictions and we've done a lot of work on what's the, what's the future of work going to look like? How's the office going to operate? How, what happens when people come back and will they all come back and all that? So we'll talk about that. But when, when you're, when you're moving into that, that kind of a future, you just have to admit it's kind of unknown. Stuff's going to evolve. It's going to, you know, it's going to find some kind of homeostasis in the balance between all the different new pressures that are on on folks. But including, including the fact that a lot of people, you know, when we when we went to remote work because we had to, a couple of really interesting things happened. One is that, um, you know, if you look at before the COVID, maybe two three percent of of the world had was doing remote work of some sort, and now it's more like 70 percent. And we were talking with um, a couple of executives and they said, well, you know, the, the real thing that changed is when people went home, we had to trust that they would get their work done. And it turned out not only did productivity go up, but people were really, really efficient and people did get their work done. And what happened is, you know, we learned that we, we could trust them. And once that genie's out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. Now people are going to say, well, I expect to be trusted. And I expect, you know, to have the kind of work uh, flexibility that I had during during COVID. It wasn't all positive. Don't get me wrong. And if you were, you know, if you worked in a hosp- hospital or a, or a hotel or a restaurant, I mean, you, you there is no remote work, you know, for a, a restaurant server. But for most of the people that we're talking about involved in this call, um, you've got, you know, you've got white collar professional people that you're working with and managing, and they um, enjoyed the uh, some aspects of the of the relative freedom. And what happened is we had to we learned to actually manage well i.e. don't tell people what to do, tell them the results you need. Right. And then people, people turned out to be pretty smart and inventive. You know, we're in the middle of what um, another, I just looking at the statistics yesterday, another four and a half million people quit their jobs last month. So we're up to 30 or 40 million people who have quit since COVID. And our argument is that's not a new thing. So we didn't suddenly reveal, you know, that people wanted to quit their jobs. If you look at the Gallup data, they've been doing surveys for 20 years. For 20 years, our, our, our disengaged workers have been somewhere between 65 and 70%. Basically, only 30% wow. of the American workforce says, I'm engaged in my job, I enjoy my job, and, and my job you know, gives me interesting things to do. Everybody else is, is looking for another job. And what happened during COVID is they just finally got fed up with it and said, look, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. I'm, I'm pretty sure I can find another job. And they quit. And most of those people quit without a job in hand. So it's really a quite a different phenomenon. Part of that was, you know, lots of folks in the service industries and, and sure. people that we just talked about who have to go to work uh, were tired of lousy pay and crappy conditions. And they've moved out of those jobs into other jobs. But a lot of blue collar and white collar folks are just saying, look, what I realized during COVID is life is more important than my job. And that's always kind of been true, but it became really clear. And so if you want to talk about how, how work's going to happen from now on, you're going to have to talk about life, my life with my job in it, because 
when all you want to talk about is the job, I know what's going on here. You're maximizing my performance for your profit. And I'm, I'm not going to work that way anymore. I want a work-life balance. I want, I want to be able to do the things that I need to do. I expect to be trusted and you're going to have to treat me that way. Otherwise I ain't coming back. So how do you design that? So, so, you know, let's get to the design then. So if, if, uh, I mean, we know that 57% is the common uh, study is that 57% of communication is body language. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, you're not going to get body language over Zoom. So you don't get that. So you're basically giving up by working remote 57% of communication, right? So you want people, a lot of people want people back in the office, at least part-time, how do you even come at it? You know, you talk about design thinking. How do you right. come on at it from a design perspective? Well, design, you know, our version of design, design thinking, which we used to call it just human-centered design, doesn't start with the problem. It starts with empathy. If you look at our diagram, it's empathy, then redefine the problem, then have lots of ideas, then prototype and test. And if you ask, you know, if somebody says, give me design thinking in, in you know, two seconds, I'd say, have a lot of ideas, because if you have a lot of good ideas, you have a better ch- chance of choosing one. And if you tie those ideas to something that humans actually care about, you have a chance of doing something that's innovative. So start with empathy. People do want to be back in the office. People are social animals. People love the conversations that occur in the office and the intangible connections that are created and the networks that are created. So I don't hear anybody saying, I never want to go back to the office. I want to be remote all the time. I love Zoom. No one is saying that. But what they are saying is, yeah, I, I want that connection. I want to be. I want to be around my peers. I like the informal conversation and the dialogues that happen. And that actually right. is also where a lot of innovation occurs. You know, we're having this problem. What do you think? And when I'm trying to do a brainstorming session or something like that, I pull everybody back into it, on, back on campus, and we do it that way. But you know, while the, the, the one woman I was talking to was classic comment. She said, "You know, what I like is um, now when my boss has that two-hour-long boring staff meeting." Um, I make sure I'm not, I'm home on that day. And I tell him, oh, gee, I don't have a lot of bandwidth today. I'll just listen, you know? And then she says, and I fold my laundry because basically nothing ever happened in that meeting anyway. <laughs> what's, what's going on is people are just revealing what's inefficient about work. There's a lot of, there's a lot of time where like, even, even in open office plans, you know, we work a lot with Herman Miller here because they're a, a, a very innovative, you know. Yep, absolutely. Firm that does, you know, really thinks about what the office is like. And they talk about, you know, nobody really wants just an open office space. They want what they call caves and commons. You need a place to go to, to get your head down and, and do work. It's quiet. But you also need common areas where you can interact and, and engage and, you know, and collide with the other people that you work with because people like the social interaction. And you don't want to miss, like I say, the body language, the, the other stuff. You, 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 if you're, particularly if you're managing a group of people, you need to know how they're feeling. In order to understand how to how to you know get them you know, get the most productivity get the most connection going, so the the cave is now let me work from home. I, I, I'm banged through those spreadsheets. I can get that I can get that analysis done for you much more quickly if I'm not interrupted ten times by people right. dropping by the sure. office. But I need to be in the office in order to connect with people to get things done because I have all this social capital and that's how I that's how stuff moves through offices. It doesn't move through processes and procedures. It moves through people getting stuff done, and people get stuff done often in in spite of processes and procedures. So I think everybody's, I think everybody's going to settle on it's a three, two, or it's a four, one, you know, it's a three days in the office, two days at home, you know, four days in the, four days at home, one day in, in, in the office, something like that. There are some companies that have been all, all virtual all the time here in Silicon Valley, the, the folks who do WordPress 
um, the big the big software program have never had an office. Um, the folks at Envision and one of my um, instructors works at Envision have never had an office. But even they have what they call IRL meetings. They have in real life meetings at least once a week and and often uh, once a quarter for the whole group and once uh, you know once a month for the for smaller groups because they recognize that without that social interaction. Um, you don't you don't get the efficiency or the creativity that you want. So, so let so me I break this down. Gonna be, the design's going to be recognizing humans need to get together, and they and they need that they need those common spaces together, but they also need caves, and the caves now will be you know working remotely. All right, so that's what I want to that's what I want to ask you. So the cave, so what we don't want what we've historically had is caves in the office, and you're suggesting the cave needs to be out of the office. We do the we do the work out of the office, and then what we do is is we do the interaction in the office and the collaborative stuff and the and the social stuff. And I'm working with the company um, that makes the social media company uh, product called Snapchat. The company's called right. Snap. Whenever you know Snapchat, mm -hmm. Snapchat happened to be started by one of my students, so I we're doing a bunch of projects together with them. Um, and they were telling me, you know, they've grown so fast that um, since the pandemic started in 20, 20, March twenty twenty. They've doubled the size of the company. So literally 50% of the company has never been to a Snapchat office. And they're really struggling with that because the, the way they create culture and you know what it feels like to work there and why do you want to work there and not someplace else has, has a lot to do with you know the kind of office spaces and the kind of collaborative work that they did. So we're working with them on how well, how, how do you create collaboration the best you can online, but also how do you make coming back to the office super efficient? In, in terms of, not, not, I don't mean in terms of getting work done, but if, if the office should be used for the things that can't be done online. So how do you do that? Get rid of the boring staff meeting. <laughs> you know, start, start, start really, you know, zooming in on what was, what was productive and what wasn't. And what, what do people, uh, in, in, you know, if you, if you look at people's intrinsic motivations, one of the things, you know, in our, our first book, Designing Your Life, we used a lot of positive psychology research. I, was, I tell people, look, I, I teach at Stanford. It's a research university. I can't just stand up in front of class and say, Bill thinks you should design your life. I mean, I've got to have some kind of basis in research. And in the second book, we, we leaned into um, Edward Dietrich's work and Paul Ryan's work. And they call their stuff, um, you know, they, 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 they research human motivation. And it's interesting because humans, you know, you think of it like most of our motivations are carrot and stick. Do something, get a reward. Do something, you know, get punished. And so we, we learn through that method. But humans are interesting and they have uh, what they've identified as three intrinsic motivations. Motivations that you just do it because you want to do it. Because it's the way humans are wired. One is autonomy. We like to we, you tell me what you need me to do, Tom, but don't tell me how to do it. Let me have the autonomy to figure it out. Two, relatedness. That's the human thing. We need, to, we need, we need connection. We need to work together. We're tribal animals. We hunted together. We, we, we evolved to succeed in in groups. So autonomy relatedness and then connect um, competence, which is mastery. We like getting better at stuff. You don't have to, you don't have to give me a reward to get better at something. I want to get better because I'm motivated to get better. So we talked, we say in the book, the arc of your career, ARC, autonomy relatedness, connectedness, uh, competence. So we're purpose-driven people. You want me to be more engaged at work? Tell me how what I'm doing drives the success of the firm. Tell me how I'm doing helps my clients, you know, succeed. If I know what my purpose is, you know, uh, Nietzsche said, I can give, I can, I can come up with, uh, I can deal with almost any how if you tell me my why. I don't care how bad the situation is. If I'm working on something that I believe in, I will be motivated. If 
I'm working on something that allows me to improve my skills, I'll be motivated. And if you learn and if you let me do it in my way, I'll, I'll be motivated. The interesting experiment is they take two groups of people and they give them a task like solving a puzzle. Because solving a puzzle is one of these things like, oh, you know, I'm curious and I want to solve a puzzle. It's an intrinsic motivation. You give one group, you say, do this puzzle, we'll time how fast you go. You know, just do it and we'll, we'll time you. you. Tell the other group, we'll pay you 10 bucks if you solve the puzzle. The group that you give an extrinsic reward to for an intrinsic motivation does worse every time. The people who are just doing it for the joy of doing it or the, the curiosity of doing it or for crushing the time limit or doing better than the next team. So, so lean into intrinsic motivations. Mo people come to the office for relatedness. They come to the office to get better at their job, mentoring, training from somebody senior to them. So you want to, so, so, so if I hear this right, you want to make it easy for them to do that. So yeah, exactly. You, That's you, what you should manage towards. You want to facilitate. So for example, I'm thinking about our CPAs and okay. So you think, okay, I can do a tax turn in a cave, but can I? Because the problem with doing the tax turn in the cave is that I, I might need help with that tax turn. And if I stick to my cave, I'm going to like start spinning my wheels and I'm right. not going to get the help I need. Right. Whereas I need, if I'm I need, in I an office help, environment, I, need, I, need, I can just Set, lean over and say, well, you know, can you help me with this? And, and then that, that collaboration happens immediately. So what I'm hearing you say is, well, we just need to facilitate it. Let, let, let's just make it easy for them to collaborate, make it easy for them to work in the environment. And then they'll want to work in the environment. Am I, am I getting yeah, that? And because, because I'll come in because my mentor is there or the person who's got that information you know, that can help right. me do this there. And sometimes I just want to crank. Right. I got a whole bunch of, you know, stuff I got to process through and I want to crank. That's a perfect time for me to be home working really hard. If it's a simple question like, hey, how do you do this on Excel or how do you do this? I mean, I can just text a friend or chat sure. somebody in a, in, a, in a Zoom meeting. But the kind of mentorship that I come to work for, the kind of, you know, mastery that I come to work for and, and feeling like I'm getting better at my job. You don't need you don't need to motivate me to do that because I want to do that. I'm a motivated, I'm a self, self-motivated person. What you need to do is give me the, the context and the tools and the relationships to do that. And that's what's going to happen in the office. That's what makes coming to the office valuable. And frankly, if you need to have a staff meeting where you just update everybody, awesome. That can be on Zoom. Nobody needs to be in the room for that. Um, you know, we can we can design, we can design a three-two where being in the office is super valuable. And it's where the learning occurs. It's where the other, you know, the, ma the mastery, the autonomy occur. And we can design the other days to be, you know, head down, just crank out the work, get it done. And what's what we've, what the data shows, Microsoft did a big study. I think uh, LinkedIn did a big study. We're more efficient because we don't have all the interruptions that happen in an office. So the, you know, the interruptions have a positive side. Hey, it's just, it's the informal com communication, body language stuff you were talking about, but they also get, you know, they also get in the way of, of you know, work and you, there are times right and you i'm sure you this is true for your 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 cpas where i just need some quiet time to get some stuff done yep. first oh and, for sure and, for, and for that's sure. better done you know you know at home in a place where i've set up a, i think at this point you know when when you know i'm a designer i know about ergonomics when we first when the when the lockdown occurred march 2020 I didn't have a home office. I didn't have a desk. I didn't anything, but I knew I needed to put my laptop on something adjustable. So I, I was actually working for the first two weeks, uh, two months on an ironing board. Because <laughs> <laughs> you can make an ironing board. You can, that's right. <laughs> because I couldn't order, I took two months to get the, uh, you know, the, the movable desk ordered because everybody was ordering desks. But um, 
no, no, I think we can, we can absolutely design it, but design it around what, mo what motivates people. Because this is the other reason why they're, they're disengaged. They're, you're not giving them autonomy. Not you're not so, showing them how to, to achieve mastery or, or you know, competence in what they do. So, so let me and ask you about the- Into their need to be you know, uh, uh, on, a, on a high performance team. People love being on high performance teams. They do. Let, let me ask you about that, the autonomy, um, because this is, a, this is a big issue in our industry. Um, we, we've historically tracked time. We've historically um, uh, build by time. It's yeah. very, very input driven, right? Yeah. And what right. we're trying to do is we're trying to get to output driven, um, mm -hmm. which is really, frankly, all the clients care about. They want the output. They don't care about the input. They want the output. Right. So how do you make that transition? Because it, it seems to me like the autonomous, giving them autonomy is actually an opportunity there to do that because what you're saying is here's the result i want frankly you know as long as as long as i get the result and some of the result is following the process that might be part of the result but sure. in the end this is the result i want i want these work papers i want this tax return i want it done on this time period i want it done done this way so how how do you make that transition from a, basically an input based workplace to an output based workplace well, you know, and this is this is occurring everywhere. I'm, uh, my my buddy Dave Evans, who writes a book with me, um, he did a big project with uh, a big law firm here, because the law firms are doing the same thing. They're saying that people want to pay for the contract, they want to pay for the negotiation, they want to pay. But they, this hourly thing, tracking hours, it just doesn't make sense anymore. So, I mean, there's two parts to this. One part is your business model is changing. Your the people who hire you are saying, I don't want to pay by the hour. I want to pay by the by the output, and that's that's got a whole set of issues to it. But internally, I think, um, you know, I ran a consulting company and we were doing engineering design and, and we all, you know, we build by the hours. And some, some, sometimes we just said, hey, it'll cost this much and we'll have the answer Friday. You know, and sometimes we said, no, we don't, we don't know where we're going yet. So it's just going to, you know, it's going to take this much time and you're just paying for the team and the process. But um, I think internally, if you're, if you're willing to not track the hour or track the output, I think you'll see an enormous increase in productivity. Because if you tell me, hey, Bill, I need this done by Friday, whether you do it in five hours or 20 hours, I don't care. I just need it by Friday. Then, um, then I have an incentive to be more efficient, right? I have an incentive to write a little macro so that my spreadsheet does the calculations, you know, by hand, by hand. I have an incentive to learn pivot tables so I can, you know, converge on a, on a solution. So, I mean, if you, if you give me, if you give me objectives, and and deadlines i'm a much more motivated person in general when you make these kinds of cultural shifts because it's a huge cultural shift to go from it is know, i'm telling you what to do versus i'm just telling you what i want for the output you figure it out you, you know i i think 80 or 90 percent of the people are going to go this is this is great it took me a little while to get my head around it are you really serious it doesn't matter how long i take but you know here's where leadership comes in hand in in, in place because you know, if, if the leaders say this is the way we're moving the firm and they commit to that and they change the incentives so that they're organized around output, not hours, and they change the, the way people are managed, you know, it'll, it takes a while for a culture to change. But um, once people believe that it's true, then, you know, then, then I think 70 or 80% of people are going to say this is great. There's always going to be some people who are like, look, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But but they're so burned out, basically, or they're so checked out of the of the mission of the organization that I'm not sure, you know, that that's. I don't think we want to design around them. 
I think we want to figure out how to either energize them or, or maybe maybe they need to find something else to do. You know, my I, I used to run I ran a pretty big group at Apple and I ran a big group when I was doing my own consulting. Uh, and I have you know, my two favorite, you know, sort of management times when I thought I was a good manager was when I took a young, a young kid who was had a ton of promise and and really smart and taught them how to manage themselves and how to manage others. And the other best part was taking somebody who was really burned out and unhappy and not not good and figuring out how to counsel them to quit. Yeah. Like this isn't the this isn't the right place for you. And I can I can redesign this all day long, but you don't want to do this work anymore. Exactly. So Set them free. Set them free. Why don't we both decide that you'd be a happier person if you didn't work here? Totally agree. All right. I let I, I want to wrap up with this question. How do we design a better deliverable for our clients? So how do we design that output? We're talking about now we're output based. How do right. we design it in such a way that it's a better solution or a better deliverable to the client? Because I do think there's an element of design in what is that output rather than I'm just finding a tax return. How do we design that output? Well, you know, that's interesting because that, that's also in the in the book on designing your new work life. Because a lot of people are saying, thinking, maybe I want to do a gig, maybe I want to have my own thing. And it's like, well, wait, wait, wait. Before before we start, before you jump off the cliff and do your own thing, you got to understand that your customers. Even I mean, you you got to man. You can say, hey, a customer who wants my, their taxes done, it's pretty straightforward. Right. If I do a yeah, accurate job on their taxes, they'll be happy. No, that's actually got almost nothing to do with it. I mean, the accurate. The accurate job on their taxes, it's just the it's the table stakes. Right. Everybody's going to do that, you know, plus or minus a little bit. I certainly want to have a, a CPA that that I think is you know is is really smart, really well versed, knows all the all the you know all the ins and outs of the of the tax laws, knows how to find the, the most efficient um, uh, process forward. But every customer is an emotional customer. And so you got to start with what their needs are. And what we do is we call, we call a journey map where you say, okay, the, 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 the relationship with this customer didn't start the day I started filing their taxes. It started, you know, how did they find me? And how do they, how do they discover my, my firm of others? Why did they choose my firm? What was the journey? What were the friction points in that journey that, that cost them time or, uh, or uh, potentially cost them sort of the connection to, to this relationship. And then when they got the output, how was it? How was it presented? How was it? How was it managed? And how do they understand it? So, because every customer is emotional, they don't just want the answer. They want the answer, the in a way that feels, you know, like they've been they've been taken care of. So, I would argue you you, you got to do a, you have to design that customer's journey from the day they they find out about who you are to the day you deliver the texture. And if you want them to come back the next year and the next year and the next year, it's about a relationship. And, the, and, and relationships are fundamentally about emotions. So you need to understand, and, and there's lots of tools for understanding how, how people feel. Um, and and you've got to be careful because what people say and do isn't necessarily connected to how they think and feel, right? I mean, right. people do a lot of things and then, and then come back and tell you, you know, they were unhappy. So I think it, it is a, a, it's, a, it's the best part of design is starting with empathy and understanding the journey and then you can design the relationship because at the end of the, like at the end of the day, if you want to differentiate your service, your product and your service, you have to have a really deep understanding of who your customer is. And it isn't about just the deliverable. It's about the journey.
I love it. I love it. Again, this is Bill Burnett. It is Designing Your New Work Life, How to Thrive and Change and Find Happiness and a New Freedom at Work. Uh, best place to uh, find out more information other than the obvious of buying your book, Bill, it would be where? It's pretty easy. So we have a website called Designing Your Life, but it's designing your dot life. So that's the, that's the instead of dot com, it's dot life. So designing your dot life. Um, with the website, we got a blog. We got lots of stuff up there. I'm, by the way, I'm, I've got a. I'm working on a new workshop with some um, folks in the high net worth, um, you know, uh, planning business called Purposeful Wealth. Once you have a lot of money, and you figured out, you know, how to not pay a lot of taxes, what's the money for, right? And and there's a big, yeah, you know, there's a big question about like, you know, what what's this for? Sure. What, why? What's my legacy? What's my thing? So designing, you know, purposeful wealth design is is one of the things we're we're working on, but. Yeah, go to designingyear.life and there's lots of information there and you can sign up for, you know, uh, programs and other things. Awesome. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Bill. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to this podcast and, and recommend you listen to it multiple times because uh, design is not something we typically think about. I love uh, the idea. We start with empathy. We look at the journey and, you know, what's the result going to be and really focus on that those the three intrinsic autonomy, relatedness, and mastery. And when we do that, we're always going to have better clients, better practice, and a better life. We'll see you all next time. You've been listening to the Wealth Ability for CPA show. Better clients, better practice, better life. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>